It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. This is an edition of Rico Bronia. I've looked forward to doing all offseason because I think sometimes during the course of an offseason, we either get really, really excited or really, really depressed and nowhere in the middle. And sometimes to give us proper perspective on if we should be really excited or really depressed, we have to look to the past. So I've mentioned this before about doing a Rico Bronia in which we look at some of the great off-seasons of all time and some of the worst off-seasons of all time. And I thought now's the best time to do it as we approach spring training. Obviously, we live in a world in 2024 where we think the off-season is over, but not really because there's still a bunch of free agents available. So I guess in the case of this off-season, card is subject to change. But in the case of off-seasons of the past, we know if it worked. We know if it was successful. And we know how we felt during the course of that off-season. So here's the way we're going to do this. We're going to split this into two parts. We are going to go part A today, which is looking back at the off-seasons beginning in 1992 all the way up until 2006. And the reason I started in 1992 is because for me personally, it's the first off-season I can remember. So looking back at off-seasons of the 80s and off-seasons of the 70s, we can do it. But I have no frame of reference. I can only tell you what actually happened and not how I felt at the time and how I looked at moves at the time. So for those of you under the age of 40, you remember all of these off-seasons. Well, I guess not under the age of 40. If you're 40 or above, you remember all of these off-seasons. If you're 25, maybe there's a few that you don't recall, but I could at least tell you how I felt at the time. So we'll go through each off-season, what the team did, what the team didn't do, how we felt going into the season, and obviously, we all know the results. We all know what happened. And you're going to notice a pattern. Write it down. You'll see. When you have high expectations from an offseason, does it always work out? And vice versa? This is the examination we're going to go through over the next two editions of Rico Bronia. The good, the bad, and the blah. Because there have been a lot of blah offseasons in the history of this franchise. So let's start all the way back to the first time I could remember, and that was 1992. And this was an offseason where the Mets were really, really aggressive. They were coming off a disappointing season. And I think to us, this ownership group, Nelson Doubleday and Fred Wilpon at the time, wanted to go out and make a splash. They wanted to change the core of this team. Remember, a year earlier, they had lost Darryl Strawberry in free agency. They had signed Vince Coleman, and 1991 was a massive disappointment. During the offseason, they go out, and they signed Bobby Bonilla to a five-year, $29 million deal, which at the time was big-time money. And remember, at the time, Bobby Bonilla was one of those key bats in the Pittsburgh Pirate team that had won one, two, three consecutive National League Eastern divisions. In fact, growing up, that was our first rival, at least for me as a kid growing up. It was the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was the Doug Drabeck, Andy Van Slyke, Bobby Bonilla, and of course, Barry Bonds, Pittsburgh Pirates. At the time, Bonds was the better player, but Bonilla was not that far off. And Bonilla was a free agent going into 92. Bonds was a free agent going into 93. Now that we have retrospect to look back on Maybe they shouldn't have gone five years, 29 for Bobby Bowe, and maybe they should have saved it for Barry Bonds. They also went out and signed Eddie Murray that offseason to play first base to a two-year contract, and they went out and signed Willie Randolph, who was at the end of his career, to play second base. They also traded Kevin McReynolds and Greg Jeffries to the Kansas City Royals for Brett Saberhagen, who at that point looked to be 
a pretty damn good top of the rotation arm that you could put next to Doc Gooden and David Cohn. So this was an offseason. Again, I'm only eight years old at the time, but I remember knowing all the guys they acquired, knowing they were stars, and being damn pumped up. The Mets were going to be a team to be reckoned with in 1992. <laughs> I laugh only because we know the result. We know they went out and lost 90-plus games, and the season was an out-and-out disaster. But that offseason, and granted, it's the time before social media. It's the time before blogs and Twitter. But we did have WFN. We did have Sports Talk Radio. We did have the back pages. I think as Met fans, we were very, very excited. And I remember hearing Gary Cohen before the season started, they were doing a special on WFAN because the Mets were obviously on the fan at the time. And Gary Cohen was on a stage. And I was there with my dad for opening day. And Gary Cohen was asked, hey, do you think the Mets could win the National League East? And Cohen's response was, they have as good a chance as anybody. And the crowd roared. And my dad looked at me and said, he thinks this team's going to suck. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, ah, that was a very PG answer. That was a, I don't want to tell the live crowd that this season's going to be a disaster. So I'll do it in a very delicate way by saying, yeah, we could be as good as anybody. We all know what happened. The season was an absolute disaster. So the 1992 offseason was one of those offseasons, looking back all these years later, 30 plus years later, that on paper seemed really, really good. But obviously, it all backfired. Willie Randolph was washed up at that point. Bobby Bonilla could not handle New York despite having some success. Brett Saberhagen would have injuries. He would have his bleach incident. He would not fulfill the expectations we had. And Eddie Murray was fine over two years, even though he never talked to the media. Not that that was a problem. Not that that caused the Mets clubhouse issues. But looking back, while the individuals may have given you solid performances, these moves all turned out to be a disaster. 1992, at the time, we thought it was a B plus. The results, an F minus. That gets us to 1993, in which we should have known better. Because coming off a 90 plus, 90 plus loss season, did we really think things were going to necessarily get better? They did go out and acquire Tony Fernandez via trade for Wally Whitehurst, DJ, jo DJ Dozier, and Raul Casanova. And they did acquire the ageless Frank Tanana. But really, 1993 was about hoping that the guys you added from 92, a la Eddie Murray, a la Bobby Bonilla, obviously the veteran additions that were already there, David Cohn, Doc Gooden, Sid Fernandez, that all of that would work out. And obviously it did not. It was actually a bigger failure than the previous season as they lost over 100 games. I think the book, The Worst Team Money Could Buy, is about the 92 team. But the 93 team is probably... For my money, the worst baseball team I've ever watched. That's a tough way to get into baseball. It's a tough way to start loving baseball and scoring every single game was 1993. So that offseason was a very blah offseason. I remember some of the bigger names that were out there at the time. Barry Bonds was a free agent. Greg Maddox was a free agent. And at the time, as a kid, I was hoping, why can't we sign them? You know, why can't we sign Greg Maddox, the best pitcher in all of baseball? Spoiler alert, he signed with Atlanta. Why can't we sign Barry Bonds? Let's take another guy away from Jim Leland's Pittsburgh Pirates. That didn't work out. Spoiler alert, he ends up in San Francisco. If those moves are made, as opposed to what they did a year earlier, maybe we're talking about a very different era of New York Met baseball. The offseason of 93 was very blah. Like, as I said, they didn't really add that much. It was more hoping 
that 92's class would mesh better. It did not. They lost 103 games. The team was an out-and-out disaster. So I would say going into the season, we kind of rated the offseason as pretty much a C-minus or a D-plus, and obviously the results were an F. That gets us to 1994, where clearly we all knew they got to try something different. (laughs) This isn't working. The buying of big free agents was a big failure. So their offseason was very, very quiet going into 1994. They made three moves. They reacquired Kevin McReynolds for Vince Coleman, which really is a problem-for-problem trade when you think about it. Something this franchise would repeat years later when they acquired Bobby Bonilla for Mel Rojas. Kind of the same thing. Here's this guy that hated New York. Here's this guy that really didn't love it here. Didn't perform necessarily at the highest level, especially at the end. And let's go bring him back two years later in Kevin McReynolds. But the only reason we're doing it is because we had to get rid of Vince Coleman. We had to. We had to get him off the team. So Kevin McReynolds for Vince Coleman was one of those trades when it first went down. I think we all laughed. I remember laughing, thinking, oh, this is gonna, <laughs> this is gonna suck. There's no way McReynolds is coming back and, you know, giving us a second stint in New York that's gonna be great. And obviously, yeah, they had to get rid of Vince Coleman. They also, and this one was late in the offseason. I would say this was during spring training, but I'll count that as an offseason trade. They dealt away Anthony Young, who had that incredible record of losing game after game after game as a starter out of the bullpen. He wouldn't win a game. I think it was 26 in a row. And they acquired Jose Vizcaino, who I remember jumping for joy when they made that trade because this team was so desperate for a shortstop. So to get Vizcaino and not be forced to watch Tim Bogar or Kevin Baez as the opening day shortstop felt like a real celebration. And the other move during the offseason, which... At the time, little did we know it would pan out to what it turned into is when they traded a young first baseman in the minor leagues named Alan Zinter for the very name of this podcast, Rico Bronia. But think about that. That's a very whatever offseason. They weren't exactly going out making a lot of additions from 93 into 94. We just kind of figured this was going to be a real rebuild season. Same thing going into 95 coming out of the strike. They really made one significant move. They acquired Dave Malicki, Jerry DePoto, and Paul Bird for Jeremy Burnitz and Joe Roa. And obviously, some of those names we mentioned would have a decent impact on the team. Dave Malicki, most famous for the complete game victory at Yankee Stadium in the first ever Met Yankee game. Jerry DePoto is just a frustrating, crappy reliever, now more famous as a general manager. And Paul Bird actually pitched well for a short period of time, but he became more famous elsewhere. 95 was kind of the same thing. It was more about the development of young players, knowing about Generation K, knowing the kids that were on the horizon as opposed to the big addition. So the 95 offseason was a, you know another one of those blahs, maybe a C, maybe a D plus. The results, I don't know. Burnett's had some pretty good years. He ended up coming back years later, which we'll get to, and that was a disaster. I remember not thinking much about what they were doing in 95, mostly because I was just so excited there was going to be a baseball season. The 95 offseason was basically a month long because we had the strike that wiped out the year from August of 94 on. They had the replacement players for a while. And then when they finally settled, quote unquote, it was late March. And then opening day was about a month later. So there wasn't exactly a lot of move for offseason moves. 1996, they were more active going into 1996. They signed Lance Johnson as a free agent, which turned out to be a home run, at least in year one. 
They acquired Mark Clark, a solid middle, middle back of the rotation arm for Ryan Thompson. And remember, Ryan Thompson was the big prospect they got back in the David Cohn trade along with Jeff Kent. And then they traded Eric Ludwig and two other minor leaguers for Bernard Gilkey. It's funny, you look at those three moves, and in 1996, they worked out incredibly well. Lance Johnson had an amazing season. Bernard Gilkey had an amazing season. Mark Clark was solid in the rotation till he got traded away. But the team lost 91 games. So they made some good little moves. But overall, the team still stunk, mainly because the young pitchers weren't developing. Uh, during that offseason, I don't remember ever being that pumped up about Lance Johnson and Bernard Gilkey. Gilkey was a nice player in St. Louis. I didn't expect he was going to be as good as he was. But another very kind of blow offseason going into 1996. In 1997, they were very active. They traded Paul Bird for Greg McMichael, who at the time was a solid reliever for Atlanta. So I thought that was a big upgrade. They traded Jerry DePoto for Armando Reynosa, which I also thought was a big upgrade because that was improving the back of the rotation. Then they made the trade that was so freaking bad in the moment and was so bad overall, but you can't kill it too much because they ended up getting John Olerud, and that is when they traded our namesake, Rico Brona, to the Phillies for Toby Borland and Ricardo Jordan, two garbage relievers. So on the surface, it's a shit trade, but they also traded Robert Person for John Olerud, which was as good of a trade for two years as you could have. Robert Person was a fine starting pitcher, but we all know how good John Olerud was for a couple of years when he was here in 97, in 98, and then 99. I wish he stayed. I wish he was here past that, but unfortunately left as a free agent after the 99 season. They also signed Todd Pratt which turned out to be a very valuable move as a backup catcher for Mike Piazza. And they also signed Brian Bohannon, the big Babe Ruth looking like left-handed pitcher who could also hit a little bit. That was a very under-the-radar solid offseason when you think about it. Like very, very solid moves going into 1997. And then they made a big jump and actually went out and shocked the world and won 88 games. But this was the off-seasons now of the late 90s, early 2000s, which started to really come together, and they were making big boy moves. So that off-season of 97, not bad. I think looking back on it, the Olerud moves kind of overdoes the Rico move, as bad as the Rico move was. You add Pratt, you add Bohannon, you add a back-of-the-rotation arm in Reynosa. I'd say that was like a B-minus off-season. 1998, though, they made big moves. They acquired Dennis Cook from the Marlins for Fletcher Bates and Scott Comer. So that turned out to be an A. They acquired Al Leiter from the Marlins for A.J. Burnett, Jesus Sanchez, not that one, and Robert Stratton, which as well as Burnett put together his career, Al Leiter turned out to be one of the best left-handers in the history of this franchise. You know, you have Al Leiter, you got Jerry Kuzman, you got John Matlack, you got Al Leiter. Like not a bad little run by Big Al. So that was a big-time move. They also signed Masato Yoshi from Japan. So three big moves there. And then they also acquired John Hudek for Carl Everett. That one kind of sucked. That was not a great one. But acquiring Dennis Cook, who would become one of their more reliable relievers in 99 and 2000, was a pivotal move. And obviously bringing in Al Leiter, who was, to me, the ace of the team for 99 and 2000, even with Mike Hampton here. So that was a big jump up offseason with the pitching that they added and the long-term impact they had on teams that were pretty good. That's like a B plus, A minus offseason. Then you have 1999. 
And this was a big one because they made a lot of moves that made a big impact on that 1999 team. First of all, we mentioned the Bobby Bonilla for Mel Rojas trade, whatever. They were looking to dump Mel Rojas. That's really what that came down to. So they take back Bobby Bonilla as a bench player, whatever. They acquire in a three-team trade, Roger Cedeno and Charles Johnson, who they end up flipping, for Todd Hundley and Arnold Gooch. Then they trade Charles Johnson for Armando Benitez. So essentially, they trade Todd Hundley and a prospect, and they end up back with Armando Benitez and Roger Cedeno. Let's be fair about this. That is a great trade. Despite what we all may think about Armando Benitez and his legacy as a Met, you got to give him credit for what he did in the regular season in 99 as an eighth inning guy, in 2000 as the closer. He was a damn good Met. Unfortunately, he leaves us with these negative postseason memories. But pound for pound, that was a great trade, especially when everybody knew we had to trade Todd Hundley because we had gotten Mike Piazza a few months earlier during the regular season of 1998. I mean, there was no way... The Todd Hundley left field experiment was going to continue. There was no room for Todd Hundley to play first base. And this is two decades before we would get the designated hitter. So that, to me, was a great trade. You got to look back. And the one year out of Cedeno. And after Cedeno sets the stolen base record for the Mets in 99, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, they end up flipping him in an even bigger trade. So that's a win. But let's get to the free agents of that year. They signed Robin Ventura away from the Chicago White Sox. I think a four-year, $32 million deal. That turned out to be a win. They signed Ricky Henderson, who gives us a great 1999. They signed Pat Mahomes, who turns out to be a very valuable long man that season. And they signed Oral Hershiser, who is a very reliable back-of-the-rotation arm. Hershiser, Mahomes, Henderson, Ventura... Add Armando Benitez, add Roger Cedeno, and all of a sudden, you take an 88-win team, Piazza for a full year, and now you got a team that makes the playoffs for the first time in my lifetime. That was A-minus offseason. You got to say, right? A-minus? It's got to be. I mean, basically, all of those moves worked out. Every single one of them. Benia for Rojas really didn't, but it was also, when you think about it, kind of minor in scope. Like, it didn't matter. Benia was a bench player. Now we go to 2000. The Mets really didn't make that many moves going into 2000. They made one really big, impactful move, and then I think, unfortunately, kind of a downgrade move that they had to make. We'll talk about the big move. They bring in Mike Hampton and Derek Bell for Roger Cedeno and Octavio Dotel. And you knew going in, this is a one-year rental for Mike Hampton. Who knows if he's going to stay long-term? Wasn't a concern at the time. You're trading an Octavio Dotel, who was like a mini Pedro for the brief period of time he was pitching in 1999. And obviously, Cedeno had an incredible rookie season. You had to give up a lot. But you got back one of the best pitchers in baseball in Mike Hampton and Derek Bell. And we forget about Derek Bell. Derek Bell had this outstanding April where they couldn't get him out. And then he pretty much disappeared. And then he got hurt early on in the postseason and was a non-factor in the playoffs, which is a part of why we had that outfield of Timo Perez, Benny Agbayani, and Jay Payton. So Derek Bell turned out to be, you know, kind of have a minimal effect after April. But overall, Mike Hampton was good. You know, the big negative for Mike Hampton is how he pitched in Game 2 of the World Series. But how he pitched in the NLCS, 
Now, the guy was the NLCS MVP, which has continued this odd trend where if you win the MVP of the NLCS or the World Series as a New York Met, that usually means you're gone the following season, whether it's Daniel Murphy, Mike Hampton, or even before that, Ray Knight. It's like the kiss of death. But I look back at that trade, and it was absolutely worth it. I mean, look, Octavio Dotel turned out to be a nice relief pitcher who bounced around baseball. It's not like he turned into Pedro Martinez. And Roger Cedeno had some pretty good years. Really, he effed us by us bringing him back a few years later, not even trading him. The downgrade move was signing Todd Zeal. And I don't mean that as an insult. Todd Zeal was a fine Met. Todd Zeal got big hits in that World Series. Unfortunately, it wasn't his fault. Timo Perez wasn't running. So I don't mean that as if he was bad. I meant it that he was a little bit of a downgrade from John Olerud. He was a downgrade defensively. You were asking Todd Zeal to play a position he wasn't that familiar with. He did an okay job at it. But I think most of us feel that that team in 2000 would have been better if they had John Olerud. Remember, it was the greatest defensive infield of all time. That's the way it was kind of framed during that 99 season. So it was a fine pivot by Steve Phillips. It wasn't the worst. I remember one of the rumors going around during that offseason was this blockbuster trade for Carlos Delgado and David Wells, who were both on the Blue Jays at the time. And one of the hot rumors going around is that the Mets would trade basically the package they sent to Houston for Hampton. Cedeno, Dotel, and Benitez would have been in the trade to Toronto for David Wells and Carlos Delgado. And looking back on that, oh my God. (laughs) We may win the World Series if we make that trade. Uh, if we're being fair. The other thing that happened during that offseason that cannot be forgotten is how close we came to trading for Ken Griffey Jr. In fact, we did trade for Ken Griffey Jr. The package was very similar to the package I just said for Wells and Delgado. Dotel, Cedeno, and Benitez for Ken Griffey Jr. But as Ken Griffey Jr. confirmed a few times, he was not given a lot of time to make his decision. And because he was forced to make it over a small period of time during the holidays, he ends up invoking his non-trade clause, no-trade clause, and said no thank you. He ends up getting dealt to Cincinnati. And, you know, you try to figure out how things would have worked out. Like, I could tell you right now, the David Wells-Carlos Delgado package felt like that would have been a game-changer. David Wells was always such a money pitcher. You bring him back to New York— You know, maybe that game two of the World Series that Mike Hampton pitches against uh, Roger Clemens where he struggles. Maybe David Wells pitches a shutout. Who the hell knows? You don't know. And Carlos Delgado was one of the best offensive bats in all of baseball. So I think back to a deal like that and say, boy, I think we would have been better off over the Mike Hampton, uh, Derek Bell package. Now, you don't have Armando Benitez. So as much as we say that's a good thing because of his blown moments in the playoffs, they're adding another bullpen arm. Who is it? You know, is John Franco closing out games in 2000? And how good would that even make you feel? But the Ken Griffey Jr. one is very, very complicated because while he was one of my favorite players growing up, I think for most of us, he was our favorite player growing up. How would that have worked in New York? With all the injuries he ended up having, having, with the pressure that comes along with playing in this town, I don't know how well it would have worked out. So if those three trades were the kind of rumored deals, I don't think they ended up in the worst scenario getting Mike Hampton. The King Griffey Jr. one could have been bad, especially with that contract. And basically, I don't know how that would have aged here. We would have been very tough on him. As much as we love King Griffey Jr., 
Guy comes here, there are high expectations. The other move they made is they acquired Jesse Orozco for Chuck McElroy, which pumped me up as a kid. Jesse Orozco getting to be part of the Mets again. And then in spring training, they flipped him to the Cardinals for Joe McEwing, which clearly turned out to be the right call. So the 2000 offseason was, I think, overall a good one because they aggressively got Mike Hampton. Zeal for Olerud felt like a downgrade. That's how I view the offseason. 2001. This is where we have a problem. This is where this Met franchise kind of got derailed. Because coming off a year in which you're in the playoffs two years in a row, and coming off a year in which you're in the World Series, you can get fat and say, ah, we're good, we don't have to do anything crazy. Or you can say, that's not enough, we need to do more. And in that offseason, Alex Rodriguez was Sherrod. He wanted to be a Met. And we all know what happened. The Mets spread the 24-1 rumor. Scott Boris and A-Rod nowadays tell us I would have taken less money. He ends up signing with the Rangers for 10 years, $252 million. A-Rod's not a Met. And instead, the Mets lose Mike Hampton, Derek Bell, Kurt Abbott, Mike Bordick, Pat Mahomes, and Bobby Jones to free agency. And they replace those guys with Kevin Apier, Suyoshi Shinjo, and Steve Traxel. It was, to quote Gary Cohen, a net negative. Especially when you combine it with the fact that adding Alex Rodriguez would have been that game-changing, franchise-moving move to make. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine it anymore. It's been 20-plus years. I would say I'm over it, but I'm not. But that's the big miss of 2001. The big miss of 2001 is the best player in the world in the prime of his career wanted to come here, and the Mets didn't do it. And instead, they signed Kevin Apier, Siyoshi Shinjo, not Ichiro, who was a free agent that year, Steve Traxel, and they acquired Donnie Wall for Bubba Trammell. So things went from we're really good to crappy. And at the time, I was disappointed with that offseason. Look, anything after not getting A-Rod was going to be a massive disappointment. But overall, Steve Traxel, Kevin Apier, who was okay the one year he was here, Suyoshi Shinjo, who we had no idea. The only thing we knew is he wasn't Ichiro. And all Ichiro did was come over and become one of the great hitters in the history of the sport. That's all. But 2002 was the offseason where things went worse. It was basically 1992 on drugs. They bring back Roger Cedeno. <laughs> They signed David Weathers in the bullpen. They acquire Roberto Alomar for Alex Escobar, Gerard Riggin, Matt Lawton, Billy Trable, and Earl Snyder. Here's the positive. They didn't give up much for Robbie Alomar. <laughs> when you look at all the prospects, Alex Escobar was the big prospect at the time. It's not like any of it panned out. They acquired David Justice for Robin Ventura, but then promptly traded David Justice to Oakland for Mark Guthrie. They traded Kevin Apier for Mo Vaughn. They signed Pedro Estacio. And then they traded Todd Zeal, Benny Agbayani, Glendon Rush, and Lenny Harris for Jeremy Brunitz and Jeff D'Amico. All of these moves, like to a T, all of them completely sucked. Like one after another. Brunitz and D'Amico weren't any good. Estacio wasn't any good. Mo Vaughn was okay. Like, he was okay. The problem was you were taking on that bloated contract. David Justice, we never got to see play here because instead it was Mark Guthrie. Robbie Alomar was a disaster. Roger Cedeno was a disaster. This was, this was, I, I'm trying to remember at the time. I'm living in D.C. when they made all these moves. And I think I was okay with them at the time. 
And the other rumor they were connected to was acquiring Juan Gonzalez. And thank God they didn't do that. I mean, it would have gotten worse if they went out and got Juan Gonzalez. So they went out and made big moves. And they acquired guys who had, you know, very good resumes like Mo Vaughn and Robbie Alomar in their prime. But one after another, they were awful. I bet you in the moment I thought it was like a B. And obviously it turned out to be an F. 2003, they said, you know what? Let's add more. Let's go get Tom Glavin. So they signed Tom Glavin, which I hated. I didn't want anything to do with Tom Glavin at the time. They signed Mike Stanton. They signed Cliff Floyd. They signed Ray Sanchez. They trade away Ray Ordonez because he didn't want to be here anymore. They signed Graham Lloyd. They signed David Cohn. They signed Tony Clark. But really the big decision they made during that offseason was they let Edgardo Alfonso go. And we've had a lot of conversations about keeping homegrown players and how important it is. And I admit, like looking back at Jacob deGrom, considering he barely pitched, got hurt, needed Tommy John surgery, the Mets probably ultimately made the right decision letting Jacob deGrom go as much as that pains me. Well, Edgardo Alfonso was another one of those guys where it pained me to watch him leave and sign with the San Francisco Giants. But looking back at what ended up happening to Edgardo, he had the back issue. When he left, he was only 30 years old, 29 years old, so I thought he had more left in him. And he wasn't great. Like, he kind of, he didn't fall off a cliff immediately. Like, his first year in San Francisco wasn't great, but it wasn't the worst. But then 2004, he gets a little worse. 2005, he gets worse and doesn't play a lot. And by the time 2006 is rolling around, he's jumping around baseball. So it was very, very painful to to not have Edgardo Alfonso after the 0-2 season because he had a good year in his last year. But looking back at it, the Mets made the right choice. But to me, that was one of the biggest decisions they had to make during the offseason. They had Tom Glavin, which most of us hated because we're bringing in this brave. But losing Edgardo Alfonso was really the tough one. But history makes it seem like they made the right choice. In 2004, they signed Mike Cameron, they signed Braden Looper, they signed Kareem Garcia, they signed Shane Spencer, they signed Todd Zeal, bringing him back, they signed Scott Erickson, they signed Kaz Matsui. This was a very ugh, kind of offseason. I, I was excited about, I think I was mostly excited about... Uh, was it Cliff Floyd they signed that off? Yeah, Cliff, uh, Cliff Floyd was that year too, if memory serves correct. I didn't write him down. My apologies. Mike Cameron was okay. He was one of the key guys in the Ken Griffey Jr. trade and was a great defensive center fielder. Braden Looper, who you know immediately we realized sucked, was not exciting. Kaz Matsui, the issue with Kaz was that you know we didn't know anything about him. And the fact that Jose Reyes was being moved to second base for him meant, boy, this guy better be brilliant defensively. By the way, Cliff Floyd was a year earlier. My apologies. He was in 2003, not going into 2004. Um, but that was the big question about Kaz Matsui. It was, is this guy that good that you're moving Jose Reyes to second base? And I'm telling you, it was immediate. It was immediate that we knew this guy's not a shortstop. Like, what are we talking about? This is the guy that we're moving Jose Reyes to second base for? And it's funny, this offseason, we've heard a lot about the Mets signing Yankee rejects. Well, Kareem Garcia and Shane Spencer were the definition of it. I mean, one sucked more than the other. I mean, both those guys were terrible in the outfield. 
Both those guys were not productive. Scott Erickson was a shell of his former self. I remember him getting hurt during a, as he was getting ready to make his first start as a Met, he got he got hurt warming up in the bullpen, which was always a sign of, okay, I don't think this thing's going to work out. Because Scott Erickson actually had some success. Like he wasn't the worst pitcher in the world, but he barely pitched in 2004 after the Mets signed him. But I do recall, like, I think he was making his first start as a Met. It was a cold night in April. And as he's warming up in the bullpen, that's where he got hurt. That's where you knew things were going to go bad. And a year earlier, they signed David Cohn we talked about. I didn't get to mention this. It was sort of the same thing. David Cohn made a handful of starts in April. It was like 25 degrees outside. And before you know it, David Cohn couldn't get anybody out and realized, okay, maybe it's time to walk away. So when you look back at these first 13 off-seasons we've gone through, 1992 to 2004, most of them suck. (laughs) Most of them felt like they sucked at the time. And most of them worked out that way. I'll give you the one where I had higher expectations than the results, and I'll give you the one I was most pumped up for. Definitely the one I was more pumped up for than the results was 2002. You know, adding Robbie Alomar, little did we know he was going to be terrible, adding Mo Vaughn, you know, adding Roger Cedeno back, you know, the signing Pedro Estacio, I figured, okay, back of the rotation arm, no big deal. I actually liked the justice for Ventura trade and was disappointed when Justice got flipped to Oakland for Mark Guthrie. But I think the 2002 one, and I should have known better, was probably the one I was highest on. And I turned out to be very, very wrong. And then the opposite, the one that I maybe wasn't as excited about, and it turned out to be really, really good, was probably... You know what? I don't even know if there is one. I don't know if there is an offseason in which I wasn't excited and then things turned out to be great because I was pumped about the Hampton trade in 2000. The 99 offseason I felt pretty good about, you know, flipping Todd Hundley for Sedano and Benitez, bringing Hershiser and Henderson and Mahomes on one-year deals. Uh, yeah. So I guess in the first 13 years we've looked at, there have been some we got excited about and the results were terrible, but very, very few where the off-seasons weren't great and things worked out. Will that change in part two of our off-season retrospective? We'll see. We'll start it off in 2005 and go all the way up until current time. Any thoughts about the first 13 years we went through? You can email us, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. We'll go through 2005 to 2000 now, as we say. And also coming up, as we get closer to spring training and the beginning of spring training, the 10 burning questions we need answered in spring training. We'll have a podcast about that, and we'll make our 26-man roster projection as well. So a lot to do as we get ready for the start of this baseball season and the beginning of spring training 2024. Are you ready? Thank you for downloading and subscribing to Rico Bronio, wherever you can download and subscribe to your podcasts. And obviously, you can interact with us at any time, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. So there you have it, 1992 to 2004. On part two, as we go through every offseason in my history, we go 2005 to present. Hopefully, you listen and download. Thank you for listening and downloading to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? 
Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.